You're listening to an audio message from Palm Vista Community Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit palmvista.org. Well, this morning, we are going to continue our series in Isaiah titled Living in the Shadow of the Great King. And um, they were so kind to give me two chapters to cover today. So I hope you didn't have lunch plans because we're going to be here for a little bit. Um, So if you could... Just go ahead and and make your way towards Isaiah 36, 37. We are going to camp out there. You can just keep your Bibles open to those two chapters. Um, I've titled the sermon this morning, Who Will You Trust? And as we go through this narrative, we want to see its purpose for Hezekiah, uh, the, the man who was king of Judah at this time, and the people of Judah. But we also want to see what the Lord would say to us through this passage today. How many of you have ever heard of the show Fear Factor? Hey, everyone. I don't even know if the show is still on the air. I think it might be. Um, as Al said, I previously had the opportunity to, to live in Southeast Asia, um, traveling around Laos, and uh, I felt many days, like if I would have looked closely, I would have seen some cameras like poked back in the trees uh, because of the situations that we encountered um, There were a number of situations that could be described as no way other than sketchy. Um, I I think my teammate would agree with this. Uh, For instance, there was a time where we had to go out to conduct an interview. And um, to get to where we were going, we had to ride in a boat uh, that was actually more like a a sawed-out tree that sat about an inch outside of the water. And our captain uh, was more like an evil Knievel than actual boat captain. This guy's like ramping logs that are in the river, and it was pretty scary. Or there was another time where we had to learn how to ride motorcycles about an hour before going to rent some motorcycles to go on a multi-week research trip. There was another time where we, uh, we were riding out towards the Vietnamese border, and we rode into this heavy storm, and we want to get out of it. We see a shed kind of out in the middle of this field, so we just haul off through this, sh- through this field to get over to that shed, and we see these giant holes everywhere, and we're sitting there waiting on the storm to pass, and I tell my buddy, I was like, this looks a lot like that place where we were up in northern Laos uh, that was called the Plain of Craters because it was full of bomb craters from the Vietnam War. And uh, that's never uh, a nice feeling whenever uh, the primary health concern in a country is unexploded ordinances from that war. I distinctly remember one trip, the same trip actually, uh, we encountered a lot of of rough terrain on our our trip, on our ride, Um, several days in a row of just, man, just mauling through stuff. And uh, we're about six days in, And I had already dumped my dirt bike a few times. I had already broken off a brake handle and had to have that repaired. Had already uh, broken the shifter pedal off and had to go have that welded back on after riding 40 kilometers in first gear back to the village. Um, And we're going into the city. We're we're both exhausted at this point. My teammate and I, we're coming into a city where we're going to rest for a day. Um, we, We were tired several hours a day of riding, riding, conducting interviews as we're riding. And um, so we had already, this same day, we'd already ridden through a number of rivers, uh, a couple of of streams, well, rivers, they were small rivers and streams. And I can look on my map and I'm like, all right, we're getting close where we're going to rest. It's getting late in the day. And we come over this hill and there is a huge river between us and the other side. And um, so I'm, we're both tired. We quickly start examining our options. We'd already ridden through a few rivers. So first 
option was, well, maybe we can ride through it. Um, second option was, well, maybe we have to backtrack and go around on land, but that's going to take quite a while. Um, or we're sitting on the bank and I look up and there is this little like rickety metal bridge that's sitting about 40 feet over the river. And I see one guy on his motorbike crossing. And so that's an option. Um, we couldn't tell how deep the river was from the bank. So we hear this huge truck just barreling towards us. It comes over the hill and I'm like, hey, if this thing can make it through this river, then we're fine. And uh, it had tires about as tall as I am. And um, so it starts into the river and it was good for about 20 to 30 meters. And then all of a sudden, boom, it just drops like three and a half feet. And reality hit me at that moment. There's no way we can cross through this river. So I pull out my map. I'm like, it's going to take way too long for us to backtrack. We're looking at like four or five hours and it's already late in the day. This is, this is not possible. The only way we're getting across this river uh, today, unless we're going to camp out right here, is that we drive over this little metal bridge. And um, my teammate was much more adventurous than I and uh, very confident. So we ride up to the top of the hill and this bridge is about three feet wide and it has two steel lines running the length of it all the way across. And um, we have to cross one at a time. And then finally, it's my turn to cross. I'm tired. I'm praying, Lord, don't let me dump this bike or myself into this river. And we get across and my heart was beating so fast. I felt like I had chugged five Red Bulls. Um, it, was, it was so scary. It's probably one of the scariest moments of my life uh, up to this point anyways. But yeah, I'm sure there will be more. Um, Especially if you end up working with the guy that I worked with. He is, uh, he's an awesome guy. Very adventurous. Um, but that, my point is that we we're often find ourselves in situations where we have to make tough decisions. Um, in fact, when was the last time you were presented with a tough decision that you had to make? And did you find it difficult to trust that decision even after it was made? We often find ourselves uh, choosing between different options in life. Where, where to live where to work, what school to attend. Sometimes these decisions are, are much more weighty. They, they might involve uh, caring for the health of one of our family members or maybe even ourselves. And further, after we make that decision, we have to trust that that decision was the right decision. In our text today, we see Hezekiah faced with making some tough decisions uh, that would ultimately prove life-altering. There are five primary scenes that emerge uh, over these two chapters. And over these two chapters, we see King Hezekiah unwillfully engaged in receiving threats from a neighboring nation, and he is forced to make a tough decision. And the question for both Isaiah's contemporaries uh, and by extension, and Hezekiah, and by extension us today, is who are you going to trust? May the answer be as clear as the story we are reading today, and that is that we trust in God alone for deliverance because he always acts for his glory according to his word. In fact, that's the main idea of our text, and we will see it emerge over these five scenes. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for your kindness God, we thank you for your care, for your provision. God, we thank you and praise you that you are faithful. Even when all things seem to go wrong, even when we have tough decisions in front of us that we might not even want to make, Lord, would you teach us through this text, through the life of Hezekiah, 
that we can trust you. In fact, we can trust only in you because you will always act according to your word for your glory. And on that, we can bank our hope on that. We can bank our trust on that and not be afraid. Lord, would you speak to us through your word this morning? And it is in your name we pray. Amen. Well, in chapter 36, our story opens uh, with the king of Assyria. His name is Sennacherib, and he has sent a, a band of messengers to, they're strolling right on into Jerusalem. Now, a little bit of background, one can imagine that this, this meeting was probably a little bit of a surprise to Hezekiah. In Isaiah 7, we watch Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, form an alliance with Assyria when the Lord had instructed him not to do so. Ahaz was given an option through Isaiah to either trust the protection of God or to trust the protection of the nations, and Ahaz chose the nations. Fast forward to Hezekiah's time, and we see this alliance with Assyria is actually still intact. However, Assyria is now coming and knocking at the door of Jerusalem, ready to take it over. In 2 Kings 18, when you read this narrative, we actually see Hezekiah go into a a brief panic, uh, and he starts to beg forgiveness of Sennacherib. And it ends with Sennacherib levying these heavy fines on Hezekiah, uh, 11 tons of silver and one ton of gold that Hezekiah ends up paying to Sennacherib. Uh, He removed that from the temple, from his own treasury, and it's the exact same tactic that his father took to preserve this alliance and the protection of Assyria. So he likely thought that he was in the clear, that he had protected his people, only to find out that there is now a band of messengers and soldiers sent from Sennacherib waiting at his gate to talk to him. The intent of this trip is not an ex- you know, this simple exchange of pleasantries. Hey, how you doing? Hope all is well. It was not a thank you for paying your fine. The intent of this trip is Sennacherib wants Hezekiah to know that his demise is on the way. So Hezekiah sends out his representatives to hear the message from Sennacherib. And Sennacherib's primary spokesman in this text, he's named the Rabshakeh. He launches into this full verbal assault. And the conversation just quickly spirals out of control. Now, one thing in this text, this conversation is not taking place behind closed doors. This is in the public sphere. And you see people in the text lining the walls of where this conversation is taking place. And not only is it taking place in the public sphere, it is not happening in some foreign or diplomatic language. It is happening in the common language of the people of Judah. So they know everything that's going on. So if you ever watch news or a politics channel, I'm really not that big into politics. So some of the stuff they say just goes right over my head. That would not have happened right here. And I think that is intentional by the Rabshakeh. So we see, uh, we see his representatives there. We see what's going to happen in this conversation, starting in verse 4. So if you would, join me there and follow with me. And the Rapshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? And whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man that leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? 
Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So we see in this particular section, the Rabshika is accusing them of trusting in other nations to deliver them from Assyria. He then attempts to undermine the people's trust in Hezekiah by accusing him of deception. And if that wasn't enough, the Rabshika reminds these, the people of Judah of the military power of Assyria. And then the final punch, he's not done. The final punch comes whenever he claims that the Assyrians have been sent by the very God of Judah to destroy them. But that's not all. He's not done. This is a long assault. He continues. Let's pick up in verse 13, verses 13 to 20. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me. Come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of you of his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware, lest Hezekiah Let Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvain? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have have delivered their lands out of my hand? That The Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. So we see here this assault is not pleasant. They are given an out, though, at the end. The the Rabshakeh says, make your peace with the king of Assyria. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you by trusting that the Lord is going to deliver you. There's no need to worry. In fact, in making peace with me, you can drink water out of your own well. You can drink, uh, you can eat from your own vine, your own fig tree for the time being. But then we're going to come. We're going to take you away to our land. But don't be alarmed. It's a land just like your own. It's a land of grain and wine, of bread and vineyards. Moreover, look around. How many gods of other nations have delivered their lands from my hand? That's right, not a one. Don't be deceived. No one else will deliver you. Make your peace with us. We will protect you. That is the charge laid from the Rabshakeh. Does this sound familiar to you at all? Is this not the tactic of the enemy of our souls? And has this not been his tactic from the very beginning? Was this not his tactic in the Garden of Eden whenever he uh, convinced Adam and Eve to eat of that tree that the Lord said, do not eat of this tree or you will surely die? Was this not his tactic when he was tempting the Lord Jesus himself to hold out this offer or this promise of acceptance and protection? Were Jesus to to believe him, to, to distrust the Lord and to put his trust and the evil one to deny the father? Is this not his tactic when he entices us to distrust God today? 
He holds out these shiny promises of deliverance, of protection, of satisfaction, pleasure, joy, and freedom if we just trust him instead. But all of these end up being a shiny hook in our nose, pulling us away into bondage. So we move from scene one into scene two. We see this initial reaction in chapter 36, starting in verse 21, and it moves to chapter 37, verse 9. We see a reaction of distress among Hezekiah's men who were out there to hear this conversation. And then we see one of distress from Hezekiah, and he immediately goes to the temple. He sends those in in service at the temple to, to Isaiah to tell him of what has happened. This is Hezekiah's message. The situation is desperate, Isaiah. We don't have strength to respond to this. Pray to the Lord, your God, for the remnant that is left. Interestingly, Isaiah doesn't respond with, I told you this would happen. No, God says through Isaiah, do not be afraid. I've heard the Assyrians reviling me. I got this. I'm going to act. So Hezekiah is given an assurance from the Lord if Hezekiah will only trust God. So perhaps there's a glimmer of hope here for Hezekiah as he sees the Rabshakeh and the soldiers that were with him turn and make their way out of Jerusalem because the Lord had said, this is what will happen. Perhaps he thought, all right, praise God, that's over. This is done. But if only that was the end of it. So what we, see, what we saw in, in scene one was where this assault began. And now we're in scene three, and the assault continues, this time from Sennacherib himself. So even though Sennacherib's men had left the city, he did not let that stop his intimidation of Hezekiah. Now he sends a letter in an attempt to undermine Hezekiah's trust in God. So he's already tried to undermine the people's trust in God by saying, your God sent me to destroy you. And now their leader, he is attempting to undermine his trust in God by saying that he cannot trust him for deliverance. So Sennacherib's assault and its blasphemy, it reaches its height here. Look at verses 10 through 13 in chapter 37. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Respha, and the people of Eden who were in Telesir? Where's the king of Hamath? the king of Arpad, the king of Sepharvaim, the king of Hena, or the king of Iva. What's his message? Hezekiah, don't let God deceive you. There are no gods who have delivered them from any other nation out of my hand. What makes you think your God is going to deliver you? A simple review of history. Just pull out the books, man. Scroll back. It's going to confirm exactly what I'm telling you. Nothing, no one will deliver you from my hand. So you can feel the, the, the drama building here. You can feel the distress building, what had to have been setting in for Hezekiah. And then we move into scene four. Hezekiah has no other option. God has to act here. He's already sent to Isaiah and said, pray to the Lord, your God. And we see Sennacherib return. Now we're in scene four. No other option. 
This is in chapter 37, verses 14 to 20. Hezekiah has no other options left. A recent survey of history would confirm that there is truth in what Sennacherib is saying. What other gods had delivered their land from his hand? The answer is none. However, Hezekiah's options, they're not completely exhausted. He has one left and he pursues it. He sees his lone remaining option as this. Either God will deliver us or no one can. And so he cast himself, he cast the people of Judah before the Lord and he asked God to act. He goes to the temple and he just simply spread, he takes the letter and he just spreads it out before God. Let's read his plea. This is what he asked the Lord and starting in verse 16. It's gonna be on the screen. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are Lord. Notice the transition that Hezekiah has made from scene two. He is no longer addressing God as Isaiah's God. Go pray to your God, pray to the Lord, your God. But now his confession is our God. And his plea is not that the Lord respond because Hezekiah is righteous and because Hezekiah deserves it, nor that the people of Judah are righteous nor or deserve it. His plea is because God is God alone and there is none like him and there is a this guy named Sennacherib who was mocking him before the world. Even more, all the nations of the earth must know about him. They must know that he is not a God to be trifled with. He is not a God to be blasphemed nor looked on with contempt or disdain in any way whatsoever. He alone is God. So whether you believe you identify with Hezekiah or not, uh, the reality is that we all do. We have an enemy that is constantly bearing down on our souls, seeking to destroy us, to diminish God's glory in any way possible. We are likely to find ourselves being offered promises of deliverance and promises of freedom and promises of joy if we would just trust in him. We are likely uh, to be reminded of all around us that points to trusting man as the answer and not trusting God. And when we refuse to give in to that, he doesn't just go away. We see that, the transition in scene one, where this assault starts. We see it again in scene three. He returns. He comes back again and again and again. And the assaults are likely to grow in intimidation over time to the point where the claim made is God won't deliver you anyway. You're too far gone. You failed over and over and over. What's the point? There's no point. There's no hope for you. This is your personality. This is your history. This is your heritage. Why try to change? 
no one will deliver you. And we find ourselves in the position of Hezekiah saying, Lord, hear this, he's right unless you act. And like Hezekiah and the people of Judah, we are indeed in a dire state apart from the intervention of God. And this leads us to our final scene. Scene five, God responds. We see this in chapter 37, verses 21 to 38. God does not leave his people in this situation. God sends Isaiah to Hezekiah with a word to assure him that the claims of Sennacherib, they have not fallen on deaf ears. He has heard the pompous claims that this king is making to the world and he will soon respond and put him in his place. His word through Isaiah reminds that it is God alone who allows Sennacherib to take down fortified cities. It is God alone who allows Sennacherib to send these bands of soldiers to threaten Hezekiah and the people of Judah. It is God alone who makes these or who allows him to make these claims and has the patience to let him make the claim. This is not for a demonstration of Sennacherib's glory or power. This is a demonstration of God's glory and power. It's a demonstration of his sovereignty over the kingdoms of the earth. God will act. And the hook and the bit that the Assyrians would place in the noses of their prisoners is soon, to lead them away is soon going to be put in Sennacherib's nose. And God is going to lead him away on the way that he came. God promises a sign to Hezekiah and the people of Judah that he's going to provide for them through this word from Isaiah. He's going to continue to provide for them the food that they need, even as they recover from this invasion from Assyria. And this, isn't, this, this is to remind Hezekiah and the people of Judah that this was God's sovereignty who brought this to pass. This was not a coincidence, and this was not their doing, but it's God's. And then God gives us a final word of assurance in verses 33 to 35. He says this, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a, with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. Catch this. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. So Sennacherib is not going to assault the city from afar by shooting arrows. He's not going to assault it by coming near through fighting with shields or casting up a siege mound against the wall. By the, by the way that he came, he will return. He will not take this city. Let verse 35 sink in. For I, the Lord, will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. In other words, he will act to save Hezekiah and the people of Judah out of his own mercy because of his faithfulness to his word, all for his glory, not man's. And then he does it. 
He honors his word. He sends his angel to strike down 185,000 Assyrians and Sennacherib departs. He goes back to Nineveh where he would be killed by his own sons 20 years later while worshiping in the temple of his God, Nisroch. Hezekiah went to his God, trusted his God and was saved. Sennacherib went to his God, trusted himself, made these pompous claims, and he was destroyed and murdered. But this is not the ultimate deliverance. God has acted not just to save Hezekiah and Judah, but God has acted to save you and to save me. We were singing about it this morning. Dare I say that the accusations made against Hezekiah and Judah Judah in this section, they're true. The second king's narrative, it's it's important because Hezekiah ultimately began journeying on this trajectory uh, or an inclining plane, as Corey stated last week, that would have left him like his father Ahaz when it comes to Assyria, trusting in the nations for deliverance. That's what the fine was. That's what he was paying him for, to keep him at bay, to keep him out. But then the Ravshika shows up at his gates and he realized we are doomed unless God acts here. So we can ignore this and we can think that we aren't in the same situation as Hezekiah to an extent, that's true. Sennacherib's long gone. He's not wandering around Miami Lakes. He's not gonna come in the door you know, in in any moment. But the reality is that our true enemy is still present and he is still at work in this world. No matter what promise of deliverance that he is holding in front of your eyes right now, listen, his goal is to destroy you. Question, where are you looking, truly looking for deliverance this morning? Are you looking to people around you just hoping they can deliver you? Are you looking to your own good deeds, your own righteousness for deliverance? We sang this morning that it's Christ's righteousness alone. So if we're looking there, we have a problem. We're looking at our own righteousness, I mean. Like Hezekiah, have you realized that looking to anything other than God, yourself, others, other things, it's not going to save you. There is no deliverance. The enemy's still at the gate. He's still come back, no matter how many times you paid him off. Christian and non-Christian alike, any time we look to or trust anything other than God for deliverance, for satisfaction, for hope, for joy, for freedom, this is sin. And every single person in this room is affected. No one is excluded. Make no mistake, Our enemy is actively working to destroy us. He works to make us doubt God's goodness. He works to make us doubt God's kindness, to doubt God's provision, to doubt his mercy through a variety of means. Maybe it's doubt because of everything seeming to go wrong in your life. Maybe it's doubt uh, because everything is seeming to go wrong with a family member's health or maybe your health. Maybe it's the painful loss of a loved one, a parent, a sibling, child. Maybe it's loss you've experienced through miscarriage. Maybe it's the lack of community and encouragement you feel from your brothers and sisters sitting in this very room with you. 
Maybe it's just scanning the world news that leaves you in despair because this is surely not what God promised. Maybe you failed like Ahaz and like Hezekiah started to and you're thinking there's no hope, that you're done. You've already paid off the enemy. Why bother? The enemy, every single time, is going to be there to pounce, to make you think Don't trust God. You're going to hear a voice. Don't trust God. He can't deliver you out of this. Don't be deceived. This narrative is ultimately pointing to a greater battle. But this is not a battle where the outcome hangs in the balance for us to see who's going to win this. No, this battle was decisively won through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God has not left it to man to vindicate his name among the nations. Hear that. God has not left it to man to vindicate his name among the nations. He does it himself. He sends his son to make a way for rebellious sinners like you and me to be reconciled to him. Al's prayer this morning, this prayer praising God for reconciliation. Jesus dies on the cross in place of sinners like you and me. The son of God who did not give in to temptation in the wilderness when he was driven there for 40 days, did not, uh, never disobeyed. He obeyed perfectly. He was perfectly pure and holy and righteous. He was nailed to a tree, not because he deserved it, but because we did. All of our forming other unholy alliances and trusting things other than him, he takes the penalty and the judgment that those things deserve. And he bears the wrath of God. One can imagine at the crucifixion of Christ that the evil one might've thought, I did it, it's over, I won. These people can do nothing but despair. And were the story to end there, he would be right. He would have won. We would have nothing to do but despair. But just like God said, the Assyrians would be led away by the same hook and bit that they used on their prisoners. God does the same to Satan. In fact, the hook and the bit that Satan uses to attempt to lure us to destruction God takes that same hook and bit and he puts it in the nose of Satan and the victory that Satan thought he won, that he had achieved through the sins of murder and rebellion ultimately lead to his destruction. Satan has been, or three days after he was crucified, the stone was rolled away. Jesus walks out of the tomb. He wasn't carried out of the tomb. He walks out of the tomb. Satan was defeated. Sin was defeated. Death was finally and fully defeated and overcome in the death of Christ. And God's glory was vindicated. And there is coming a day when that will be fully realized. When Jesus returns and Satan is cast out for good. Praise God for this story of seeing him act in the dire state of Hezekiah and the people of Judah, but don't miss the larger context. The primary thrust of the book of Isaiah up to this point is the constant question raised, who will you trust? All that we've studied so far up to this point, who will you trust? 
We see the vanity of trusting in nations for protection. No matter how many alliances that we negotiate by paying, paying them off or that we think we've negotiated by paying them off. No matter what, the enemy will continue to come back. And if that old enemy doesn't come back, guess what? A new one's going to emerge. We see the vanity of trusting in ourselves. Why? Because we can't even keep our own enemies at bay. Hezekiah couldn't even keep Sennacherib off, even after paying this huge fine. We pursue other routes and alliances and attempts at self-protection and self-preservation. And all the while, God is saying, come to me, trust me for deliverance. Cry to me for freedom. Come to me for life. So I was going over this this morning. I was reminded of a text. It's going to be on the screen uh, from Micah 7 verses eight through 10. I just want you to hear this. Let this sink in. Keep in mind of what we read uh, back here in, in verse 35, that it is God alone who acts. Hear the word of Micah. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Do you think maybe that's what Hezekiah felt a little bit here after paying, trying to pay off Sennacherib? I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Here's where it starts. Until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon him his vindication, then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like mire of the streets. We can trust God because he has proven his faithfulness. He vindicates his name. He will ultimately trample over that enemy in the streets. He has sent his son to redeem fallen sinful mankind. The pompous claims of evil do not fall on deaf ears. He hears them. And those evil claims are all silenced when Christ emerged from that tomb. We can trust God. Back to our main idea. We can trust God because it is God alone who can deliver. And it is God alone who can and will vindicate his name. So the question that we started with, the question that Isaiah has been asking and the question that that presses all of us to ask today still stands. Who will you trust? Let's pray. Worship team, if you would. Join us and lead us. Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your kindness, Lord, for your patience with us. God, we thank you that you do not cast us out when we start to form unholy alliances, but you remind us in your grace that they won't deliver us. God, would you plant this story of Hezekiah in our minds this week? Would you help us to constantly look to you come to you, cry to you. 
not go to someone else and say, pray to the Lord your God, but to come to you and say, God, my God, I need you. There is no other avenue of deliverance. There's nothing else I can trust in. I'm doomed unless you intervene. And praise God that he has through the cross of Jesus Christ. We have hope because there is an empty hole in the ground in the Middle East. Death could not hold Jesus. Satan has no grip there. Jesus emerged victorious from that grave. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, because you were faithful. You never gave in to temptation. You never disobeyed. You were perfectly righteous and holy and pure, which is what was required where we couldn't be. Even when we have all these situations, all these tough decisions we may face in life, Lord, you are faithful. You are faithful to to deliver us out of those. We can trust you. We can cast ourselves before you because you didn't even spare your own son to to reconcile us. You proved it yourself. You were faithful to your promise. You were faithful to your word. Lord, you are good. And we thank you for stories like this that remind us of your power, of your sovereignty, and of your deliverance. Thank you for loving us, for reconciling us to yourself, through the blood of Christ. And may that be our only claim, our only plea before you. Thank you. This is your name we pray. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to find out more resources or see how you can donate to this ministry, simply visit palmvista.org. And be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with upcoming teachings. 